forget it, dude. When that like article came out on deadline that Nickelodeon and Paramount were pairing up to do a television show, I was, you know, I, I took a screenshot of that or I sent it immediately to my manager and was like, I got to get in for this. Welcome and thank you for listening to Almost Almost Famous, the podcast where actors, writers, comedians talk about the ups and downs, ebbs and flows of working towards making this crazy biz and how they're almost almost famous. I'm your host, Daniel Acker. Today's guest is a writer, director, and actor who starred in School of Rock, Heart of Dixie, We Broke Up, The Righteous Gemstones, and so much more. It's the comedy dynamo and all-around joy, Tony Cavallero. Hey, bud. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, of course. Thanks for coming on. Was acting in comedy like from a young age, a thing you knew you wanted to do, or was it a later in life kind of development? I think deep down, I always knew that I really loved making people laugh. Like that, that was something that really brought me a ton of joy because both my parents like were always super funny. Like my whole family's, you know, pretty, not to like brag or anything, but they're funny people. Like, but they're also very insecure. Like, you know what I mean? It's, you know how it is. It's, yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, I grew up just watching comedy and, you know, seeing my parents be funny at parties or scouting events or, you know, karate at the karate school, like they were always kind of funny. So I think, you know, I kind of inherited that and, and I was a chubby kid. So I definitely tried to, you know, cope with that by being funny. For a lot of kids is that first defense mechanism. That to me, I think is maybe one of the best defense mechanisms in the world. Yeah. I mean, I remember it started, you know, doing the truffle shuffle, you know, and then <laughs> there was the truffle shuffle. And then I was in love with Chris Farley. Mm-hmm. And so I would do um, lines from Tommy Boy. Like I was a little fat, like I remember I was a little fat, like eighth grader. And I'd go, I was the ball boy at my brother's lacrosse games. And I was like 130 pounds or something. My my eighth grade year, my brother would have me do, um, you know, my little pet where he has the role and he does that whole bit in Tommy Boy. And he'd have me do that for like the homecoming queens in high school. And I it was it was so great to get them to laugh. But I don't think at that time, like I liked being funny, but I didn't think that like acting or performing could actually be like a career you know mm-hmm. and you grew up am i correct at virginia right mm-hmm. yeah right outside of dc yeah so and like I, I just i didn't know anybody yeah i feel like there's a moment for anyone who doesn't live i guess within hubs or part of the industry where it goes from being what feels like a personality trait and a thing you can do kind of naturally into like oh people get paid for this this is a actual thing but what a bizarre gift your brother gave you to like make people laugh and then suddenly it like makes you on par with them and have this ability to be like oh oh, okay no matter how I look or what's going on I have some it's a confidence booster for sure and I think I mean for me so like I always really loved like I, I would take theater class as like an elective you know and I think I remember you know in middle school especially because I auditioned for a play in middle school just because because I had a crush on a girl that was auditioning for it and I got a lead in it. And it was just like a one act comedy play that they were going to do in a festival. And like, that was the first like real taste. Like I got to do characters 
they wanted me to do different characters for this. Um, it was called Fairy Tales Go to Court. So I did these like different characters. I think that was like my first taste of like really doing character work. And I, I just remember I had like, I had no real like desire to like go to this play festival or anything like that. Or, and, and you think that would be like, great, I have to do this in high school. And I think I got to high school and got so locked in with sports and everything that it was just kind of like, well, I'm not going to get a scholarship to college for playing actor. <laughs> <laughs> right. You don't hear too many of those scholarships where this, you know, the kid gets the full ride because he can act so well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because all the 18 year olds that can act just go to New York or LA. Yeah. They, they you automatically know, go, they go, they go to the majors right away. They get drafted. They go to C, the CW University. <laughs> yes. They get plucked, whether you knew it or not, had this innate ability to mimic and do characters and make people laugh. But would you say through sports and stuff is where you kind of develop more of the work ethic and the discipline? Yeah, I did martial arts growing up. So that was really great, you know, um, to start off with. And we had these like two badass in instructors, Miss Lemus and Miss Cordero, that were just like instilled in us. Like, you know, my brother and I, when we were like tiny, I mean, I was like 11 and we were training for the Junior Olympics, this little fat kid running on the track, you know what I mean? On like a Sunday morning and, and Miss Lemus like had won a gold medal in the Olympics in 88. And Miss Cordero was like a world champion karate forms. And, and so it was like, so cool to have that early on. And then that transitioned perfectly in like high school sports, mm -hmm. you know, and in high school is a total meathead jock. Well, I mean, I'm still <laughs> a meathead, but you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, I, I, I football wrestling and lacrosse and I really wanted to play college lacrosse. And, and then the whole time doing theater class, you know, my, my teacher, Miss Farish, who I, who I still love, she'd be like, please, just do one after school play. I feel like you're going to fall in love with it. And it's not like I could be like, Hey coach, our coach's name, our football coach's name was Dick Adams, by the way. And we were the Annandale Adams, A-T-O-M-S. <laughs> our high school football coach was Dick Adams. And we're like, Hey coach, you think I could uh, go play Sky Masterson <laughs> this Friday night instead of playing Robinson, yeah. our big rival. <laughs> He's like, you come back when you get Nathan Detroit or nothing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, yeah, I don't know anyone who kind of at a young age grew up with like martial arts or karate or judo training that it later they don't go, God, that was so helpful. And I think it's one of those like activities or sports where whether you mean to or not, it, it teaches people to breathe. Like it teaches kids to like calm themselves and like focus in a way that like, I think other activities while great don't necessarily have that moment of like, you know, like we're going to take some time to focus on our own energy and what we're doing. And then just like the simple stuff of yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Like holding the door open. I don't know. You know, that's time management. And then for me, like, leading into sports, you know, so I didn't mention this, but I did. Well, I guess I should have mentioned this, but my mom first put us in dance. And so my brother and I, she put us in dance. Mm -hmm. For sure, we did tap, jazz and ballet, my brother and I for like three years. And then the Ninja Turtles came out and I had to choose because we couldn't pay for both because um, we were pretty broke. And so 
I chose martial arts, but those like three years of dance, like for coordination and stability and stretching, like that stuff still pays dividends today. Like it's funny, you see my performance at the ground lines, like, you know, like physicality, I'm like, you know, toe touches, dancing, pratfalls, all that crap, you know, totally lends itself to, um, to the kind of comedy that I like to do. And that's, I mean, I think all of that stuff, the sports, and then we haven't even touched that. I went to this crazy military school, like that whole weird, unique perspective was what kind of lent itself to any of the material or the characters or the stuff that I get to play now, you know, or that, that I write. Yeah. You definitely, like you mentioned, uh, influence was Chris Farley. Everyone in your family is funny. And it's kind of interesting where you've, you know, grown and become as a performer because it seems like inadvertently you were kind of groomed to be a physical comedian, like dance, karate, sports, military training. These are like what people do to get in tune with their own bodies and how it moves, how it works. Yes. And then you add on top of that, a love of comedy, a love of physical comedy, you've you've given yourself kind of the gift of like oh i know how to do a tumble i know how to make a dive and i know how to do these things without really injuring myself or if i do i know how to bandage <laughs> I know how to, you know i know how to bandage myself i know how to self-stitch <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm just like the guy in the movie who's like oh yeah. <laughs> ripping off the stitch on the on the arm hot iron to cauterize the wounds <laughs> Yes. Now give me that knife. Take it out of the fire. <laughs> Coming out to LA was the goal kind of the groundlings, or were you just like, this is where, you know, the industry is? Where was your head when it was when you moved to Los Angeles? We talked about that moment of realization that like performing or being an actor could even like be a career. So I don't know when it was for you, but for me, I, when I was at that military school, and don't tell my wife, but I was dating somebody else in college. It wasn't her. Uh, <laughs> and she had family in Coronado, and then her best friend lived here in LA and was doing background work. And so we came out. Uh, I'd always wanted to come to California. I'd never been to California. We came here and I just immediately fell in love with the weather, the palm trees, everything. And then we ended up going to like a couple parties and I met some actors that I like actually recognized and they were like normal people. And I was like, this is crazy. You know, wow, like they're normal people and I've seen them on TV. Maybe this is something I would want to do. And that's when I started kind of like the wheels started turning. You know, I went back to military college. I kind of, that was kind of my breaking point from any idea of like commissioning. So like 70% of people that go to that college end up like commissioning in, into a branch of the military. So I kind of started breaking free from that idea and going like, I wonder like what it would take or like, what should I do? And so I started mapping out this plan of like, well, I guess I'll go out there and get a master's degree. Like I was a history major. I got my bachelor's in, in history with a minor in French. And so I was like, I guess I'll get a master's in theater history or something. And maybe I can study acting while I'm doing that. Because in my Northern Virginia, no idea of the industry brain, like, oh, I have to go get 
I have to do more college in theater arts. I've got to study that in order to do it. And obviously you do have to study a bit to be a performer, but you know, it's more unconventional, I think. And so I ended up, I graduated from VMI and then worked and saved up money. Didn't really matter because I was like drug addict, alcoholic at that point, uh, but worked <laughs> and saved up money uh, that didn't last very long. And then I drove out here and moved out here with no plan, just a, a place to stay and was going to figure it out when I got here. Um, and that was in the fall of 2006. I was pursuing a second bachelor's degree because I couldn't find a master's degree in theater history, which hindsight 2020, they did have, basically you could have come up with any master's program you wanted to at Cal State LA where I went. And so I just was pursuing a second bachelor's degree in theater arts and dance. I met some really good people, but it was that first summer I was doing background work and I met a friend and he was like, dude, you're funny, man. You should take classes at the Groundlings with me. And I didn't, I did the, the what? And he was like, it's like improv comedy, sketch comedy. You should check it out. And so I remember like mentioning it to my dad and he was like, I think you've heard of that before. And like going to the website and if you went to the website, it was like Will Ferrell and Maya Rudolph, like right there. And I was like, there's no way I could go there. This is crazy, you know? So I went to sign up for an audition. I signed up for an audition and it was like at the audition process, I was like, oh, I think this is what, I meant to do. Like, I loved it. Like, it clicked immediately, that process there. Well, yeah, it's crazy how, like, all those things can kind of unfold and, and happen. And, I mean, you're in a good, you know, crop of people. Many famous actors were history majors with a French minor. It's just, a, like, a common, common yeah. path. Lots. Meryl Streep, Daniel Day-Lewis, all, all took history, loved French. Jared Leto. So, of course, we fast forward, uh, you're in the Groundlings main company. And I would say, I remember the moment when you kind of auditioned and got the part in the TV show version of School of Rock and how kind of serendipitous it is being loving physical comedy and Jack Black being another person. I'm sure you were like, this guy's, you know. Huge. Oh, my God. I mean. When I was at VMI, dude, my friend had a bootleg version. Tenacious D had um, a show on HBO for just a season called like the Complete Masterworks mm -hmm. or something like that. And my buddy had a bootleg version of that show. And I feel like nobody else had watched that show. And I was like, these guys are so genius. And it was before Jack Black was like anything. And then like Orange County came out and everybody was like, holy shit, this guy's hilarious. And then, of course, School of Rock. I mean, it's just like, oh, that role was written for him by Mike White. I'll never forget it, dude. When that, like, article came out on Deadline that Nickelodeon and Paramount were pairing up to do a television show, I was, you know, I, I took a screenshot of that or I sent it immediately to my manager and was like, I got to get in for this. And so I went in initially and auditioned for it. And already, like, a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, you sound like Jack Black, mm -hmm. you know? I didn't want to, you know, I'm not doing a version of Jack Black. It's just I feel like part of me has a little part of him. There's some Jack Black-isms with me, but also my own thing. So I went in there and I did my thing. And, and they were like, well, they want you to make a tape of you, like, 
singing and either playing the guitar or air guitaring. And so I did, I met with a friend, my friend Jason helped me do a whole song melody with three different songs. And then I met with Larry over at the Groundlings who plays guitar, who walked me through all the guitar pieces for the songs. And then we put a whole tape together uh, where I did these three songs at the Groundlings. It was all physical and I was doing dancing and shit. And so we did a tape after the audition and then it, it just uh, was like total synchronicity and so much fun. That job was such a blast. And those kids were like insanely talented, man. It was just, just crazy. Yeah. I feel like that is the, you know, type of job where people could easily be like, oh, they're just looking for someone who's like Jack Black. But you, while have that similar energy, you have your own style. You have your own thing. That one was so special. And I, you know, I mean, we really fast forward. So like, I got that job like almost eight years to the day to moving to LA. So that was like my first regular job. Mm -hmm. And that was like eight years in. And the third thing I had ever tested for, um, and I mean, let's say I had auditioned for 85 to 90 pilots at that point and never booked one. And that was like the first (laughs) that's the actor's master's degree kind of that's the work that's the I mean that's the thing you know I I mean exactly you know when people ask what like groundlings is you know Annie and I both say you know that that's like it's like getting a master's in comedy you know sketch sketch comedy and improv you know yeah do you have a definition of success for yourself it's definitely evolved over the years I feel like it was like to have my own tv show at one point was was like be on Saturday Night Night Live I think right now it's just to uh, be happy and working. I mean, really, that's that's it. Like, I mean, to have a job is just the dream. Just to have a job and to find the joy in it still and be creative. And my wife and I are working on a, a podcast right now. It'd be really cool to work together with her on something. We've She came on and did some School of Rock, which was really fun. And... Um, you know, obviously we've worked together at the Groundlings, but, you know, to do a movie or a podcast or something with her would be great. But I think it kind of always is evolving. You know, mm-hmm. I think it, in some way, shape or form, being able to help others kind of get their like next little step up in the, in the, in the world. I don't know. I think it just continues to evolve and there has to be like a part of it that's like giving back you know, in some way, shape or form, but selfishly, it's always just trying to make myself laugh inside or what do I find funny in this performance? But I think the idea of like being a movie star or having my own TV show, I just like, fuck that dude. (laughs) I just want to, I just want to be working and being able to provide and find happiness. And that, and that work is so gratifying in itself. That's kind of like, that's perfect for me. Yeah. Hear you. And I think the key kind of takeaway, and I think the real strong thing is, is always finding the joy and the happiness. I'm currently trying to like really focus on that because I'm reading a book all about that and how actually scientifically they've proven that happy people are successful people and successful people aren't necessarily happy people. That's, oh, you hit the nail on the head there. Dude. And so just realizing like when it, I think everyone in this business, everyone I've talked to goes through that process of like, if I can get that job, if I can be that thing, then I'll be happy. 
and whether they get it or not, it doesn't matter. But it's like the people who are like, I just want to be like happy. I want to help my friends. I want to help myself. I want to just be doing things that bring me joy. And then over time you go like, God, I'm getting to do a lot of really fun stuff. Like it just becomes, you know, a fulfilling thing. Yeah. So that's wonderful. But where's your head at when it comes to the idea of being rich and famous? I think if I'm taking care of, like, that's the thing. It's like, I think if I'm taking care of and like the bills are paid, I don't know. I, I just coming up, dude, I was so fucking broke, man. Mm-hmm. So broke. I guess the rich and famous thing, like, you know, I, I think right now it's like, if I'm able to buy some gifts for my niece and nephew and my wife and, you know, do some donations at the end of the year and, and not have to worry too much. Cause the fact is this is no matter how rich you get, no matter how famous you get, we're all fucking selfish and self-centered and we all want the next thing. And the more you can be like, I don't need the next thing. I don't need that. I don't need this. Like I'm fine where I'm at. I, I'm going to find the joy in that, but it's really hard. So I think really, I don't know if this sounds stupid or whatever, but like, you know, I, I do a lot of, you know, like I said, I'm in a 12 step program. So for me, like, it's just really, it's trying to find, like, I've got to find the joy in today in the right now and this stuff and quit, you know, what's the, cause that we do that all the time. It's just like, we can't focus or enjoy. We, you just said it, you know, we can't focus or enjoy what we're doing right now because we're like, well, what's, when's the next audition going to come? When's the next job going to come? When's that going to come? So I think, you know, for me, I think being able to just, you know, enjoy what's going on right now like the gemstone stuff is incredible i'm working on the connors it's incredible i'm just like i'm pumped i don't need anything else i'm great right now you know like this is awesome and and if more stuff comes that's that's super duper cool but the goalpost can always be moved and there's i always find there's nothing wrong with goals and striving and doing that but when that becomes your focus or your idea that's that's when you'll get to be joyful and that's when you get to be happy yeah. it's sort of like oh i, I you know i want to strive i want to you know keep achieving and doing things but you're hitting the nail on the head with the idea of if you can't pause and take stock in the good you have now and the good you've achieved then getting to those goalposts will never be the goal <laughs> it'll just always be pushed for me i'm like a work in progress like that's not if you were to come to me before the pandemic, I don't know if I'd have the same answer. I, I feel like the pandemic kind of put everything into perspective that like maybe my career and my life were a little too intertwined. And that like at the end of the day, I got to sit alone with my thoughts and not work for a year and a half. <laughs> All right, cool, man. Let's get, let's get in there. See what's really going on, man. Are you happy? Or is it your career and being able to work all the time that's making you happy? Cause you know, I think it was uh, definitely a lot of, um, you know, self-searching during that time. I've been doing this thing when I go to set where I just, uh, I'm like, okay, I'm going to pray for everybody on set today and that I can be of service to them as best as possible today. Help me to be of service and not go outside myself to be the star of the show or, you know, I got to have the biggest laugh or whatever. Let me just be of maximum service to this. So it's the best project it can be. I think that's a smart way to look at it. And yeah, through the pandemic and other areas, we're, we're in a business where work can stop and it can just 
abruptly and suddenly, and then you're in these lulls. Like, how have you find, especially even through the pandemic, or what have you done to kind of deal with the downtime? I'm trying to embrace the downtime because I think just knowing my background already from what we've talked about, I am like high energy. I like to have a schedule. I want it all planned out. I want to know exactly what I'm doing. I think that's what drove me to the groundlings because I knew that if I could just get on that wall, I'd be working, you know? And for me, it's really hard to take downtime to just read a book that isn't research for the next thing, like, or being healthy, like, with my downtime to actually enjoy it. Like, oh, I will take a nap today or I am gonna take a break. I don't have to have a general meeting and then coffee with another guy and then this networking thing. And then I've got to work on this. However, I will say that like, you know, I went through a period of, I think it was eight months of School of Rock got canceled. And I had one day of work in seven months. I did the movie, The Dirt. I did one day on the movie, The Dirt, in that time period before I auditioned for The Righteous Gemstones and booked that job. One day of work after having a four, uh, four years of a series regular to eight months. Not, I, te- I tested for one pilot during that pilot season, nothing. And then the, the Gemstones thing came along. You know, for me... I think I did a groundling show. I think I know for sure I was working on this uh, solo dramatic short that I was going to direct that I was writing and producing. You know, I've, I just feel like right now everything is evolving so quickly and you know this, I mean, you've got your podcast. I know you've written stuff and directed stuff. Like you have to do it all. Like if you want any kind of longevity right now, I think you have to be able to, play multiple roles. And so I think it's kind of honing those skills and saying where, you know, what am I going to do next? Or do I want to do a podcast? Or do I want to work on a character on Instagram or TikTok or whatever? Like everything's at the, you know, having phones now, like you can create nonstop. I mean, people shoot entire features with their phones. So it's like, you know, I think if you're new, are you confused as to what you want to do? Like the possibilities are endless now. It's not like, oh man, I need that buddy with the camera or I need, you know, I need the editor or whatever. Like you can do it all. I used to be in the mindset of like, go, 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 never stop creating. And I agree, but I think I'm at a point right now where I'm kind of like, I'm trying to find the proper bat, the proper work rest, life, balance. Right. You know yourself. So, you know, you know, the drive and the work ethic is going to be there, but through the pandemic and other times you're realizing like, you're probably better off when you do take the downtime and you take the self-care and you take those moments because you recharge and then suddenly you can actually be of service. Like you said, Yeah. time spent wisely, whatever that is, is not time wasted. Even if it's a nap even if it's a mindless activity, it will all pay dividends later. Yep. This is the time in the podcast, Tony, when I invite out the uh, insult comic, Raz Clifford. Yeah, he likes to come out and uh, take the guests down a peg. So don't mind, Tony, we're gonna gonna bring out (laughs) Raz Clifford. Come on out, Raz. 
Oh, hey, folks. It's me, Raz Clifford. Oh, my God. Tony Cavaliero, what a get. Daniel, this guy actually books work. I mean, I've, I've never seen any of it because I have taste. But I guess some idiots out there like this guy. So for the listeners who don't know Tony, let me paint a picture of this guy. Tony looks like a mix between Mickey Rourke's character from The Wrestler <laughs> and Mickey Rourke's mugshots. Okay. That's, that's basically who he is. Tony is to acting what fireworks are to fingers. It's loud and dangerous and it's a real big mess. Oh. What's that? You say something? <laughs> no. I, I feel honored already. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. Tony's a big fan of physical comedy, as in when he does comedy, people get physically ill. <laughs> Tony, you are living proof that there is no God, and I'm so sorry to give you that righteous Raz Stone. If you ever see me around, please just get me my Danish and walk away quickly. All right, bye. Bye, Raz. Oh, Raz, great. I wanted to ask him what kind of Danish he likes. Oh, probably any. Just, <laughs> I'm sure he. <laughs> I'm sure he'll just request. <laughs> yeah, it's more of the you know the subservient nature of of bringing him the Danish. Mm -hmm. He'll probably just throw it on the floor because you've touched it. Yeah, exactly, dude. I don't know why <laughs> when you said Danish. From when I loved that bit very much. Um, when you said Danish, so when Annie and I were driving back from South Carolina across the country. Um, we stayed in, uh, I believe it was Winona, Oklahoma. And it's 45 minutes from Davis, Oklahoma, where there's these like famous waterfalls. So we were going to see the waterfalls in Davis. And um, we drove by this dinosaur, like, you know, one of those roadside gas stations with a big dinosaur out front. And it was handmade, uh, uh, homemade hand pies, world famous. And I was like, babe, when we come back through here, we gotta get some hand pies. What the fuck is that? Dude, so I went in and it was like famous chefs plastered across the wall. And it was like diners, drive-ins and dives or whatever had been there. And you know, like the terrible hand pies you get at like gas stations that are like glazed and it's like apple or whatever. Well, those are all ripoffs of these original hand pies. And they make them fresh there, dude. And I got a peach one and I got a chicken and broccoli and cheese one. Like one of the greatest things I've ever tasted in my entire life. Yeah, that's, that's what Raz would like. So, oh. so you have to swing by that place and pick oh. up. <laughs> so I'd give it to Raz. I'd give him like a fresh hot one right out of the oven and he'd throw it at me. It would splare open and all the steaming <laughs> hot contents would just fuck me up, dude. Yeah. That's, that sounds, uh, sounds like a plan. If you weren't acting, which is, of course, what you should be doing and are doing, what is another career or another passion that you would be pursuing or have interest in? I think I'd be a teacher and a lacrosse coach. I think something like that. I mean, there were dreams at one point of going into the military. Um, I don't know, but I, I think something probably along those lines. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like that kind of stuff. I, I, that's, I did that for the first few years when I moved to LA. I would spend my springs coaching high school lacrosse in the area, and that was always really fun. And my brother's a, a lacrosse coach too, and 
I did always love history, you know, so. Now, would you be teaching history or would you be teaching French? Oh, that's a good question, dude. You know, I wonder. So I had no desire to study French. I just loved my French professor at, at military school. He was the coolest guy ever. But I'm curious. I'm curious if I would really want to like, oh, this would be so fun. I mean, it'd be neat to be the fun French teacher, but it'd also be neat to be the fun history teacher. I think it'd be really cool to, like, I love those teachers that could really find engaging ways to teach topics, to teach different topics, you know, and especially now it's like we are studying historiography and the way history has been told over the years. Like my senior thesis project was like, um, I did the historiography of the Boxer Rebellion in late Imperial China. So like, it wasn't only focused on the Boxer Rebellion, but it was focused on how the telling of the history of the Boxer Rebellion had evolved over a hundred years. And so for me, I think it'd be really fascinating to be like, well, here's what so-and-so said in 1923 about this thing that happened in 1864. But here's how it evolved, and the telling of that story has changed over the last. So I was always kind of fa fascinated with how bibliographies and history telling has changed over the years. Now, this pod podcast yeah. just got so fucking boring, dude. The three listeners are having a blast. Yeah. Honestly, like now's a very interesting time for that. If you were a history teacher of, of right? the, the split thought on it, but the importance, at least I'm sure we're on the same page, of it's not just the history, it's who's telling the history, what are we talking about, and how that shapes people's mindsets and how they look at their yep. world and, you know, what they expect the future 100%. to be. I've also been asking every guest, what is the story you want to tell as a guest on a late night talk show? I guess it'd probably be how I, like, met my wife and, like, how, like, the first time I ever saw her perform and do a sketch comedy, because, like, the first time I ever met Annie, we hadn't taken any classes together. I had just known that she was coming up through the, the classes and she was in advance. And I like was out in the lobby and she walked by and I kind of knew her and we kind of said, hi, how are you, blah, blah, blah. And I thought she was so pretty, but she was so sweet and soft-spoken. And then like a week later, I go to see her do her advanced show at the Groundlings and she played a lunch shift stripper who was in her late forties and she was trying to pick up a beer bottle with her cooter and she was a good four feet above the beer bottle and kept going, did I get it? Did I get it? As she's like gyrating over this beer bottle. So I probably tell that story, but I don't know. I think it might be a little <laughs> NC-17 for a late night talk show. It could be one of the later, later shows. I love that you saw that sketch and you're like, that's the one. Oh, I, that's I was, I mean, that's literally the moment where I was like, oh my God, how can that sweet of a person be doing this that's making me belly laugh so hard right now? And small world connections. I went to college with Annie, so I knew her for, for a long time. She's fantastic. And Are you guys in the same like, comedy group together? No, she was in the group called Second Nature and I was in a group called Comedus Interruptus, but all close friends yes. all, you know, performed pretty much the same time. So like, yeah, we knew each other forever, but we also were film majors, so we had some classes together. Yeah, and then and Josh, Josh was in that crew, right? And Kyle and yeah, Beck. Josh and, and Jimmy. Um, right. 
Yeah, it's a crazy That's crop a of people. Freaking crop. Yeah, and then yeah, we and also given that our both our last names are at the beginning of the alphabet, every theater, uh, every film class we had, we had every discussion together. Yeah, so we move from like two hundred person class to like a twenty person thing. So like we were always kind of buddy buddy, and you guys were a couple that as soon as you got together, you kind of see them and go, well, that's that. That makes sense. Yep. That's that's the good. That's a good balance. That's a good, good relationship right there. Well, Tony, before we we end this, are there any? You mentioned that you might be doing this podcast with your wife. Are there any other projects? Any other things uh, the listeners should be looking out for? Yeah. So I did like a super top secret, really cool thing um, that'll be out. I think on the twenty second of December. So it'll be on Amazon with Macaulay Culkin. I'm doing. Con- the Connors, I've been guesting on the Connors, and then hopefully you all have been watching um, the new season of Gemstones that just premiered, will be premiering on January 9th. And then, um, and then I'll be filming, um, I did a movie called The Binge on Hulu, and I'll be shooting The Binge too, a very merry binge-ness in February. Very fun. I'm assuming are this uh, kind of comedy parodies of The Purge type yep, idea? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, truly, you got a lot uh, for the listeners to feast their eyes on and watch any and all of Tony's performances. Uh, they are unique. They're fun. They're high energy. And if you haven't watched Gemstones, I mean, it is such a great show and you have such a fun part on it. What a what kind of a dream cast to get to just jump in and, like you said, be a service to. Like, my God, to just make... God you know, Danny McBride, and I'm guessing it's David Gordy Green as well. Like just their, their visions just come to life. It's so yeah, much fun. Super, super fun. So, Total dream come true with that one. Man. Yeah, man. Uh, well, Tony, it's so nice to see you and thank you for coming on. Thanks buddy. This was man. so fun, man. And congratulations on the podcast and keep cranking, bro. Of course. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. I'm your host, Daniel Acker, and this has been Almost Almost Famous. Thank you.